This is the Chauncey DeVega Show at TruthWorks Network, Mondays, 8 p.m. is a rebroadcast of the Chauncey DeVega Show with Chauncey DeVega. We are respectable Negroes. In this episode of the Chauncey DeVega Show, Chauncey in conversation with Nick Child. Nick Childs is the publisher of the Atlanta Black Star, and Chauncey's talking with him about his new book, Justice While Black. Thanks for joining us at the Chauncey DeVega Show at TruthWorks Network, the Black Voice Collaborative. Now here's Chauncey DeVega. Hello, I am Chauncey DeVega. I would like to take the time to thank all of you for listening to sharing, downloading, and tweeting the eponymously named podcast known as The Chauncey DeVega Show. And they ran a story by somebody named Chauncey DeVega. Quote, I find black garbage pail kids, black conservatives fascinating. That's just unbelievable. You know, it's- he goes by the name of Chauncey DeVega. You know, I've been called Uncle Tom, Oreo, Oreo sellout, shameless, but this is a new one. Well, let's talk now to Chauncey DeVega. As my man Chauncey DeVega of the blog We Are Respectable Negroes says, I have author and blogger Chauncey DeVega here with us. This episode of the Chauncey DeVega Show, I had the great opportunity to talk with Mr. Nicholas Childs. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author of the new book, Justice While Black. Uh, Nick and I sat down and chatted right about the time that the Ferguson decision was rendered. We knew Darren Wilson was going to walk. We knew he was going to be rewarded by his supporters who have already given him probably millions of dollars. He did an interview with ABC after he was found, quote unquote, innocent for all intents and purposes. The lots has been said about and spoken about the gross improprieties of the jury situation in Ferguson, a situation that was so raggedy and amuck that Justice Scalia in the American Bar Association, hardly two liberal forces or progressive forces in the United States, said that the prosecutor in Ferguson uh, acted in an incompetent and bizarre way that basically subverted American standards of law and English common law, you know, the laws and principles upon which American jurisprudence are based. As we speak, Eric Garner, his killer, another police officer who, like Darren Wilson, acted uh, grossly in terms of violence, choking to death a man on video, yelling, I can't breathe. Uh, there are marches, there are protests all over the country, and this is so important. It's wonderful to see young folk, especially young people of color, young black youth in particular, who are so often marginalized. So I was actually in downtown Chicago the other day, and I saw folks marching. I saw all the police. They had their head knocking billy clubs out, and I marched with the folks for a little while. And the energy is infectious. Um, I'm so proud of all the folks who are coming out across the color line to say, please stop uh, killing people by the police. Every 28 hours, black person is killed by the cops in the United States. A young person of color, black person, is at least 20 times more likely to be killed by the police than a white person. That is not justice. But here's the rub, and I wrote about this on ChaunceyDeVega.com, and an alternate also featured uh, two of my essays about Darren Wilson and Ferguson, that it's wonderful to slay monsters. We we love monsters, don't we? Right? They, they make for great stories. For the right-wing, racist monsters are a way for them to say, oh, look, racism is a thing of the past, and they're just outliers like the KKK or skinheads. And I think for a lot of folk on the left who are progressives, they like monsters too because then they can crow about their triumph. And here's the scary thought. And I thought about this as I walk with the folk in downtown Chicago writing about Darren Wilson, writing about now the young brother, young, young brother, Tamir Rice, 12 years old, shot dead by cops in Cleveland, a police department that's been investigated in 
the Justice Department and others have determined are basically incompetent racists. We know that black life is cheap, but here's the rub. That Darren Wilson's not a monster. The cops who killed Eric Garner are not monsters. Choked him to death on video. White racial paranoia gaze determines that somehow Eric Garner was the threat and that these people didn't commit murder, even though coroner said the cop who choked Eric Garner to death killed a man. And the grand jury lets him walk. This cop had a history of racial harassment, just like the cops in Cleveland have been racially harassing folks, just like Darren Wilson was part of a police department that was basically broken up because of a history of racism and impropriety. That, despite all those facts, those men are not monsters. They are the mundane face of white supremacy and police brutality in the United States. That's it. They are working exactly as designed and as the system wants them to work. And once you start thinking about black life being cheap, and I, I said this last time too in the podcast, one of the central paradoxes of American life and life in the West for people of color is that black life, and the lives of people of color more generally, but I'm thinking specifically about African Americans because of our experience and black folks across the black Atlantic as human chattel, that our lives are cheap, but simultaneously they're mainly valuable. They're valuable on the slave ship. They're valuable on the plantation. They are the fuel for the prison industrial complex and the millions and billions of dollars made by incarcerating in a disproportionate amount people of color and also the poor. So Darren Wilson's not a monster. The cop who killed Eric Garner is not a monster. The cop who killed a 12-year-old named Tamir Rice is not a monster. They are, as has been said about another era in human history not too long ago, sort of the banal face of evil. Uh, and I'll own that quote. There's a banality to Darren Wilson. There's a banality to folk choking to death a black man who's screaming, I can't breathe. There's a banality, um, an emptiness, a mundane evil wickedness about folks on a grand jury who would look at that video of Eric Garner screaming and pleading for his life, a man who's a father, a man who's a provider, a man who's trying to make his way in the world. Somehow the white paranoid gaze is seen through that prosecutor who presented those facts, quote unquote, because again, facts are social constructions. Facts are not race neutral to a predominantly white jury, if not an all-white jury, who then said, oh, yeah, Eric Gardner, yeah, he's dead, but the cop was right, even though the coroner said it was murder. Ponder that. So I want to send out some good energy to the folk who are marching and protesting all over the world. And I wrote on ChaunceyToDay.com about this. I said, you know, it's really interesting that the flag-waving nationalist American exceptionalism, quote-unquote, fuck yeah crowd, a little profanity there, breaking my rule about not using profanity, love to wave the flag, love to talk about how great America is. But where are they in terms of the civil rights and liberties of black and brown folk being routinely violated by the real face of tyranny, which is the American police? And where are they in terms of thinking about realpolitik, you know, dirty little secrets, uh, the civil rights movement in its context? Because, again, real history is far more interesting than the lie of history that is public memory and how our history is taught in our schools, especially our public schools. The civil rights movement was largely successful because white elites responding to pressure from black and brown folk in our marches and our protests, the carrot and the stick, in the context of the Cold War, because it was a national embarrassment. How are you going to talk about America recruiting countries throughout the world to form a quote-unquote alliance of democracy against the Eastern Bloc and the Soviets when you're oppressing black folk and other folk here at home through Jim and Jane Crow? So I just wonder where these white American nationalist flag-waving types are, and the Tea Party folks with their constitutions in their back pockets throwing in the faces of people, and libertarians are always talking about tyranny. The tyranny for them is paying taxes. Tyranny for them is a social safety net. Tyranny for the white, right, and libertarian crowd is the fact that corporations who excise land, labor, resources, who are free riders, who are subsidized by the American people, then actually have to pay some taxes. That's their tyranny, not a black man being choked to death on the street screaming, I can't breathe. So Nick Childs, 
does some wonderful teaching in the conversation here on the podcast for ChaunceyDeVega.com, Chauncey DeVega's show, where he gives some practical deliverables. Because, again, talking about these issues is important. Being a cultural critic is important. Circulating and tweeting and black Twitter, that's all great. Using the Internet to actually do something substantive, like organize online and then live stream and then use your phones and then use video recording devices to monitor the police, essential. But Nick gives us a practical playbook here. And as I said to Nick, it reminds me of The Green Guide for Negro Motorists, which was a book, pamphlet that was handed out by the NAACP for African Americans so we would know how to drive around this country and not get killed, places we could sleep, places we could eat, where it was safe to go. And they listed by state. You can go online and look it up. It really is a reminder of the reality of the color line and how it influenced every part of American life, down to something as basic as the freedom of movement of African Americans. And a lot of those places today remain hyper-segregated. America, in, by many measures, is as segregated as it was 40 or 50 years ago. Think about that. You can have a black man as president who sits on top of a system. You have a black attorney general who's part of the system. But the day-to-day face of power is white police thuggery um, and its hostility to black and brown life and to our life chances as human beings. So Nick and Justice While Black takes us from the initial police encounters and what to do and what not to do through to the prison industrial complex, court, how to present yourself, what can happen, how do you try to avoid plea deals, how the machine puts its hand on your shoulder and once it has you in those tentacles, how you're entrapped and good luck escaping. And I did a lot of learning here too. I mean, Nick was so generous. He cleared up a lot of the misconceptions I had about how to deal with the police um, encounters and how to actually use your rights to get out alive and to survive. And as Nick said, he said something so chilling, but very, very important. So Nick says in his book as well that there are a lot of things you are legally able to do and are within your rights to do. But as a practical matter, especially as a young person of color, a young man, a young black man encountering the police will get you killed if you try to do it. Think about that, how contingent your rights are. So I think you're going to really learn a lot in terms of deliverables from Nick Childs and our conversation about his new book, Justice While Black. Hello, Nick. On behalf of the Chauncey DeVega Show and the friends and listeners of We Are Respectable Negroes and ChaunceyDeVega.com, I just want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to sit down and chat. Sure. Thank you for having me. A friend of a friend emailed me and said, have you read Nick Childs' book about race the police and practical life skills in terms of helping young people to number one, survive and get out of alive uh, in terms of, you know, number one, what we call the new Jim and Jane Crow, the legal system, the wide amount of latitude that police have in terms of how they decide to proceed with people in terms of arrest and prosecution and so on. It's been really a bloody summer from the deaths of Eric Garner before we had Trayvon. And now we have the impending decision in Ferguson about Michael Brown. What are your thoughts about number one, those events And two, what was the thinking process like behind your decision to sit down and write the book Justice While Black? Well, we started, Robin Shipp is my co-author. She's a a defense attorney here in Atlanta. And she contacted me because she had been so disturbed by what she had seen over the two decades she'd been involved in the system. And I guess it had started to become more obvious to her that it was no accident that She was just seeing a long line, a parade of black males coming through the system. And we started talking before Trayvon Martin was killed. After Trayvon Martin's death, after the George Zimmerman acquittal, it just became really pressing for us the need to to do this, to do this project. 
And little did we know after we finished that this summer we, we would the nation, the black community would be just inundated with event and murder and outrage after outrage. And it was almost, I mean, it was kismet, but at the same time for us, it was heartbreaking that our book would become so relevant and so needed as we, we kind of deal with all this stuff. And so Ferguson has been, it's been really painful to watch because it, in so many ways, it paralleled so many things that we talked about in the book. So, so many things that I came across in, in my research about the history of the African-American community and African-Americans and um, America's police force. And I can't, can't predict what's going to happen, but it, it seems pretty certain that the, uh, this officer, as so many others before him, will, will walk away. And that community, which m- much of the reporting has shown how incredibly hostile and oppositional the relationship has been over the years between the community and the police force, and it's just going to get worse, it, it seems, before it gets any better. But I think that there's a, a kind of been a, a national pivot in some ways toward at least turning our attention, our, our, our nation's eye at the police force and the police force's behavior, the police force's e- e- equipment and response to crowds. All of that stuff has not really happened before when we had these, these incidents. And so I'm going to place a little bit of hope out there that there may be some substantive changes that come out of this, but I fear that there's going to be lots of pain before we get to that place. Yeah, I just did an interview with uh, Ring of Fire Radio and TV, and I was telling the host, Mike Papantoni, who's a good friend you know, of the website, and he's really been on top of these issues about police militarization. And I said to him, I said, you know what, I'm just shocked that there are folks in the general public who are legitimately surprised or they act surprised, or they feign surprise, never mind opinion leaders, when you see time and time and time and time and time again, young black and brown men who are unarmed, who are killed by the police under very suspicious circumstances, and then the police walk away. So as you sat down, you know, in your travels and talking to folk and doing media about the book, communicating with different audiences, what is your instinct? You know, you, you sat down, you've done the research, you worked with your co-author, you have the experience, you have the data, you have the scholarship about this huge divide in experience between many white folks in white America and black and brown folks who, for the most part, have accepted and understand this is not a fait accompli, but as just a perennial condition of the color line here in America. So when we see otherwise well-meaning, smart, intelligent, good white brothers and sisters who take care of their grandmas, the dogs, raise their kids, care about their communities, actually act surprised by this, is it just willful naivete? Is it failing schools? Or is it like this delusional blanket that folks have wrapped themselves around? Well, I think in some ways there's almost a parallel between how well-meaning a lot of white folk are and their willingness to accept that this is the plight of African-Americans and that the more you kind of buy into your country as a place that's fair and equitable and that that's kind of an endemic part of this patriotic, this experiment, this American three, four centuries long Play, a place that's different than anywhere else in the world, then you, you kind of need to, to buy into the, the idea that the police force won't be discriminatory in how it looks at pieces of the populations. You need to think about the criminal justice system as a place that 
we can both walk into you, a white man, me, an African-American man, and have a similar experience. A lot of those things are a very important part of how too many Americans think about this country. And so it's really hard for them to not put some of the blame on African-Americans when they hear about some of these incidents, because they, they really have a hard time buying this idea that perhaps that, that guy, that cop down the street or the, the dad of one of my kids at school would do something that is so blatantly racist or harmful to some other member of the population merely because of their skin color. And so I get a lot of people who kind of fight me on this idea and they want to come up with a, a long list of reasons or possibilities for why something happened to me or to another African-American aside from our skin color, because it's really hard to swallow that at the same time as, as you buy wholesale this notion of what America is. You know, the myth of meritocracy. So you can't have this a la carte citizenship where you just like the good stuff and you don't like the bad stuff. And then you have a media that, as you write about in your book and others have commented upon, that reinforces a narrative of black criminality. So you have a, a situation where even when the evidence is obvious, the default position for a lot of folks, you know, unfortunately, this is the other side of the color line, is that that young black or brown man must have done something to provoke the cop. There has to be some reasonable expectation that the police would shoot somebody 41 times. Michael Brown or Trayvon must have done something somehow to instigate, a, in the case of Trayvon, a white-identified police vigilante, because that's what George Zimmerman is, and in this case, Darren Wilson, to have done this. We actually, um, I just got done talking to Pastor Renita Lampkin. She's actually in Ferguson. She was actually shot by the police, and she was on the BBC, and she had a you know, horrible injury from one of these wooden riot control bullets. And one of her friends, who's a professor, said to her, he, she, he was watching TV, he saw her face and saw how injured she was, and he said he couldn't imagine that they would do it to a good, basically paraphrasing her, good white person, and that it didn't even occur to this man who's reasonably intelligent, has access to information, that the cops would treat someone like her in that way. You know, there's this divide of experience, but a lot of it is willful. You know, there's a recent survey, it's actually, I think, experimental psychology, public opinion research, where they asked white respondents about the criminal justice system. And they showed them data before and after, clearly indicating that the system is biased deeply biased against African-Americans and African-American men in particular. And even when made aware of the information, these white respondents, this is across divides of party and ideology, were even more likely to support punitive measures by the criminal justice system, even knowing that they were unfair. So when you actually sat down to write the book, how did you crystallize all the mountains of evidence that we have about the criminal justice system, about cognitive psychology, about bias, into a set of practical and useful guidelines that the reader can have a deliverable, where they can say, whoa, now I have something in front of me that details the history of the police, talks about jury selection, talks about how police treat young black and brown youth, gives some life advice. And I think your book is really powerful in terms of the stories about trials and the advice you give to African-American men who are defendants. So what was that process like in terms of crystallizing down all of that history and knowledge? Well, I think we, we kind of wanted to methodically go through the steps that African-Americans take in, throughout their lives in kind of being out in the world and having encounters with law enforcement so we dealt with why you may get stopped initially in the first place and why there are many things that are going to be going through the p police officer's mind and your statements and trying to kind of talk your way out of the situation in all likelihood going to make things worse for you. And so we kind of stepped, we went from like racial profiling to like stop and frisk and being pulled over in, in your vehicle to being in the, the squad car, to being in departments, the holding cell, 
to, to having your family come in and, and talk to you and possibly get you to admit some things or say some things that the police may be taping secretly. What happens in during your trials to what happens in the prison system itself and how that system, in order to sustain itself, needs a steady stream of black and brown bodies to the parole system and how the system is is probation is set up basically for you to fail and for you to return to the system. And then all the different ways that the, the, the justice system uses its all-consuming omniscient power to, to, to take things that once from people that, you know, there've been a lot of, there's been a few series in the, the Washington Post, the Times, about how in a lot of these towns, they basically just rip people off and take what they want. And so it's basically at every step, the system is this incredibly invasive force in the lives of African-Americans, and there's been very little that we can do about it. And so this book was kind of an attempt to start fighting back. And one of the things that I think kind of for me crystallized how I, I would begin to think about the police force is, is doing the research and realizing how in so much of the country, particularly in the South, that the police force actually was created as a mechanism to control slaves and to catch runaway slaves, they were called slave patrols. And so they roamed the countryside looking for wayward African-Americans who they might presume would be escaped or if they weren't, they would need to answer to this force. And so early on, that that was the, the definition of, of, of a patrolman in this country in a lot of places was someone who whose job was to track down African-Americans to control African-Americans, to keep African-Americans away from the good white folks who, and when you do research in the slavery years, you realize how much fear there was throughout the countryside because the white population in most places was severely outnumbered. And so when white people thought about this brown population in their midst, those thoughts were usually accompanied by terror. And so that is the, the foundation. That is the, the way that our brains in this country initially began to think about the relationship between the white and the black population. It was fear. It was intimidation from one side to the other. And this idea that if we don't control them, then they're going to hurt us. They're going to hurt our women and children. And so we must do everything that we can to keep our foot on their necks. And so you 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 slide into Reconstruction and then the, the creation of Jim Crow. And then a lot of these slave patrols morphed into the, the KKK. And so police forces that were then paid in a lot of these towns where the, the lower classes amongst the white population, they were then kind of used to create an, an actual police force where they were given uniforms and so so forth. And many of those were also the night riders who in the evening would terrorize the black population. It was the same people. And, and that's the beginnings of the American police force. And so a lot of what I see today, a lot of what's going on makes sense when you look back just a hundred years and, and where these, these police forces came from and why they were created. And so this idea that we're to expect fairness and we're to expect a, an officer who was going to protect and to serve us is kind of farcical in our community when you look at the history of, of why they were created and what they were supposed to be doing to us. Wonderfully put. About You see this in the mainstream media all the time, um, and I try to push back against it, and I'm sure you do as well, the idea that racism and white supremacy in this country are anomalies, that racism is some unknown unknown. And I was like, no, we have a ton of empirical evidence, historical evidence, 
and other evidence to tell us that this, in a lot of ways, the color line certainly has shifted and changed, but we shouldn't treat each case as an isolation, as, oh my God, there's a moment of temporary outrage. How could this happen? You go about as business as usual. And going back to the police example, that, as I said, you know, a lot of folks don't understand the history of the police in this country, as you pointed out, is really, as you said, with modern slate, they were the original slave patrols. Modern police forces can trace their origins to these, as you pointed out, these sort of irregular forces that were the dividing line to protect white property and slave owners and other white folks because they're invested psychically in white privilege and white supremacy. And if you look at the slave codes, if you look at some of the early laws in the 17th and 18th century, um, you'll see you know, this repeated finding, this repeated statute, that in many municipalities and counties, rather, in the South, by law, white men had to have a gun with them on Sunday when they went to church, because that was the day that a slave rebellion was actually most expected. So when you push it a little harder, saying, man, you know, we have clear causal connective tissue from the South, not just Jim and Jane Crow, you know, the American slaveocracy was a state of racial terrorism that used the terror of the KKK. They used the terror of informal violence by white police and other officials of the state to maintain and control black communities for the purposes, number one, of extracting labor and property, but also enshrining and protecting white political power. And as I said, you know, it's not an unknown unknown that we see this clear continuity. But again, in the media, it's always a surprise. Oh, my God, how could this happen? When in many ways, what is happening with Michael Brown and Trayvon and others is really the system working as designed. So when you go out and talk to folk about, you know, the prison industrial complex or even thinking about, you know, the great book Slavery by Another Name, and thinking about how what's going on now with human bodies, you know, extracting labor from them in prison, has its origins in chain gangs in the South after Reconstruction. You know, do you get sort of the conspiratorial-minded rejection where people are like, no, 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 this is just you exaggerating. When people leave prison, they don't get a bill. It's not that the cops go and they actually get a percentage of the property they literally steal in some cases from people, and you have to go to court to fight back. Has the response generally been positive, or has it been a lot of denial because the facts are just so plain and there's a significant portion of the public that just can't accept it? I have not had a whole lot of interaction with the white media or even with a lot of white Americans on, on this, these issues on this book. I, I, friends of mine even, you know, they, they really don't want it to, to go there and kind of talk about a lot of the issues in the book. Um, I think because they know that, one, very likely – if they're friends of mine, then they're going to kind of have accepted a lot of the things that we're talking about in terms of the differential treatment that African-Americans experience and to know that if they haven't lived in our shoes, that they can't really judge what it's like. But they there's really no upside for them to like kind of engage on a lot of these issues. So most of the feedback has been from African-Americans and there's it's just a lot of gratitude and kind of amazement that this book is coming out at this particular time when we're dealing with so many of these issues and, you know, almost in some ways it feels like we're living through the, the, the new aftermath of Reconstruction um, where there's this incredibly hostile backlash to African-American advancement. And so, you know, a book like this, though, it does feel uh, some of the reaction I've gotten. If I've gotten negative reaction from African-Americans, it's that just kind of a shaking of the head that like, wow, does a book like this really need to be written? How shameful and pathetic that is. Um, so it, in some ways, it's kind of seen as an indictment of where we are in this country in 2014. But, you know, I think that that a lot of people have kind of been stunned over the last few months at you know, the events that have transpired, thinking that certainly that we were beyond this and waking up and realizing that a lot of the progress we thought we had made was perhaps an illusion or in some ways, maybe the progress has prompted this kind of uh, cornered rat response from a lot of the 
the white population. And in terms of the response, you know, pushing a little harder there from African-Americans who say, oh my God, why this book? Have you actually gotten responses? As I said, I've read obviously some online, but you've done the media tour and talked to folk in person and certainly have a, a much broader perspective on this. Have you gotten pushback from you know, sort of the new age black conservative, not the old school Booker T. Washington school of black conservatism. I mean, sort of the new age right wing Fox News types using this book as an example of black cultural pathology or saying, wow, look how raggedy black people are. They actually need a book like this to keep from getting killed. And if they just behave themselves, they wouldn't be shot. Have you gotten any of that? No, I haven't gotten any of that. I mean, I think that the events of this summer are, are kind of a, a hard slap back at that thinking, that that ideology. And I mean, I, I saw there was a, a piece that um, a writer Lawrence Otis Graham wrote that, you know, and it was it was kind of passed around amusingly amongst a lot of my friends because my wife and I were writing books um, at the same time as he had started his book writing career, like in the, the early 2000s, the late 90s. And so we came up across him on book tour a few times. And, you know, even then we were kind of alarmed by this what what felt like the delusionary lifestyle that he had created for himself and that he was living in this bubble thinking that he was protected by his his money and his his things his stuff and even we're back then we're saying you know boy there're going to be moments when somebody in in his family is going to step into some harsh realities and then to to have him pop back up in the midst of all this craziness that's going on was almost painfully amusing. The part in this story, for folks who aren't aware, Washington Post um, ran a story from the author of the book, I believe it was called Our Kind of People. Basically, this gentleman is sort of the public face of the black 1% bourgeoisie. So Jack and Jill times 28, and then put a public face on it. So he writes a story about trying to create this bubble for his kids where racism won't exist. And it's interesting, too, because he and his wife know better, right? In the narrative, he explains, like, I know that racism is real, I'm proud of the civil rights movement, but I thought my money could keep me safe, that I had the green complexion for the protection as Paul Mooney would say. So then the son gets called nigger, right? Using the language plainly. And the son, I mean, I joked about it and said, the whole narrative sounded like a bad outtake from a lost season of Dave Chappelle. I mean, it was just criminally sad. Where the son now has some sort of breakdown because he hasn't been given the life armor to deal with racism and the facts of life and society. And there's a part in the story where it says his son won't even look white people in the eye. And he gets off the sidewalk when they're walking by and he's afraid to go to the library by himself. So in terms of thinking about your book as an antidote to that, how do we find that balance? I mean, for folks who are parents, who are mentors, who are involved with young folk who just care about, you know, our shared humanity across the color line and this age of terrorism by the police. How do you think folks and parents and mentors should balance telling young black and brown youth especially about the truths of life and how they need to comport themselves in terms of dealing with the police, as opposed to robbing them of their innocence, to use that language. My, my wife and I talk all the time about that when you're raising black kids, that the default is not sufficient. The default is kind of to let the culture raise your kids, let music and, and pop culture industry raise your kids, let school peers raise your kid, that you have to step in many, many junctures along the way and you have to guide and to, to teach. So if you have a little black girl and she's being influenced by other black girls around her who may be wearing their hair in weaves or, you know, we may have gotten many, much of their idea of how to comport themselves from um, love and hip hop. Mm-hmm. You have to, to step in and, and teach and explain and interpret. And you can't let the, the outside world help raise your kids for you. And so if you're the parent of a black boy, particularly, but a black girl, too, and you're not talking about the likelihood of your that they will encounter people who believe that they're inferior or th- or a threat 
or somehow an unappetizing presence merely because of their skin color, then you're being negligent. You are almost committing child abuse if you let your child go out into the world and not have this expectation that these incidents are going to happen. And so, yeah, there's a certain point where your, your, your child's innocence is going to be lost. You know, I do think that that's unfortunate and painful to, to, to realize as a, an African-American parent, because a lot of times the, your child is still kind of a, this innocent, bubbly creature who has no cares in the world. And you see your boy growing and, and still this goofy kid bouncing around, but closing in on six feet and looking like a much different kind of person when he's walking down the street to a lot of the, the police or, or white population. And so your big, goofy, bubbly kid is going to need to, to be taught that there are certain things that may be a, a, about to happen to him because of who he is and what he looks like. And so you you have to step into the breach and unfortunately start stealing a little bit of his innocence away, perhaps before he's ready for it, but, but before ideally you you should but that it's to protect and you know i think that there are ways to do it to be skillful about it so that you know you you don't have him walking around thinking that he should be afraid of white people or avert his eyes or that all white people are bad um particularly for a lot of us our kids are going to school and going to 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 events or playing on teams with non-african american kids and so there's no good for him to to think that every kid who's not black is some kind of danger or, mm-hmm. or, you know, some kind of raving racist lunatic. But, you know, just to have a wariness about him, to to have some confidence that that he is a talented and worth worthy person and that, you know, there may be teachers in school who start to to have doubts about him before he, he even gives them any reason for doubt. And so those those are the things that are going to kind of chip away at him, try to suck parts of his soul. And if you don't fill that soul up with a lot of good and strong things that are going to serve him well and kind of get him through these storms, then, you know, you're going to look up at, at age 17 and he's going to be a different person in, incumbent upon us to, to step into that breach and to, to continue to talk to our kids, our boys and girls about the many things that that they're going to come across because if you don't, if you let the outside world do it, then the the the, the consequences are are possibly going to going to be severe. I'm not saying that bad things will happen to them, but their confidence, their willingness to take chances, to to go out there and and kick down doors, a lot of that will will have been chipped away. I mean, how do we find the balance? Because I can imagine someone listening to our conversation, they download it, they hear us talk about this, and some of the other topics we're inevitably going to hit on. And they say, well, you know, Chauncey and Nick, they're playing this black uh, respectability politics game. They're blaming the victim. We shouldn't live our lives according to the white gaze. You're disempowering our kids. And they, they said, you know, they do the whole Geraldo Rivera. If he didn't have his hoodie on, he wouldn't be killed. Or just wear a suit all the time and he won't be shot dead. Well, that is, again, in the face of history because in the black freedom struggle, black and brown folk were wearing their suits and still got beaten, shot. And we could certainly <laughs> recite the panoply of our own personal examples, I'm sure you and I, about the African-American professional class and working class drivers and others who were minding their damn business, comporting themselves properly, and were still picked up by the cops, harassed, bullied, ticketed, and locked up. But in this conversation, I mean, and this is me being self-reflective, too, 
how do we find that fine balance between blaming the victim, quote unquote, and it's a phrase I think really needs to be processed and, and specified more properly in the public discourse, separate conversation, and saying, you know what, we're not blaming the victim, but we can also talk about common sense and, and personal accountability, not in the way that conservatives do, to quite literally blame the victim, but in terms of thinking about likely how your parents and grandparents and other mentors talk to you, and as certainly mine did as well, my godparents, my adopted Irish grandfather, and it's funny, I was trying to honor his memory. I remember one day I was about 11 or 12, and he and I would go bowling together all the time. And there was an older gentleman there he was friends with who was always hostile to me. And he sat down next to me in the car. He was giving me a ride home, and he said, Chauncey, you need to understand as a young black man, he said, I'm 75 years old now, that there are people who are not going to see you for the person you are. They're only going to see the color of your skin. And he's like, I'm a white man telling you this. And the sooner you accept that fact, the better off your life is going to be. So how do we find that balance in terms of thinking about how we have these conversations within the black community, especially with young black people? Well, so much of of the the conversation for African-Americans comes back to self-preservation. So when you're a parent, that that is the thought that is paramount to you, that you want your kid to arrive alive. And that is the kind of the, the underpinning to so much of what we were writing in the book. So a lot of these these ideas of kind of respectability politics and us trying to us telling people that they need to kowtow to the majority and and to present themselves a certain way it's not about understanding the things that may be necessary for you to kind of with some guile make your way out there on the streets to where you need to go and to get back home and so that is so much of what our parents and our grandparents were thinking about when they talked to us about these issues. And it's still the number one issue. I mean, I have a 22 year old son and, you know, I've obviously had to have many of the talks with him because you can see the, the rage sometimes that that kind of is filling him up and, and making him want to strike out. Definitely, you know, I need to give him some other means of of kind of taking that rage and applying it somewhere else because striking out can be the the a fatal decision and but yet it's a decision that too many african americans make perhaps some who don't have somebody that they can come home and talk to who understands it and so you know i think that w- when we talk about how to act when you're around the police or you know to keep yourself out of certain situations to be a, a cognizant of of who you're with and what they're doing and where they're going because so much of what happens to black boys is when they're in groups that's right and, and you may not be aware of like what the agenda is of like the homeboy sitting next to you in the car. So they pull out some weed or, the, you know, they're going to meet somebody. Or they and, have a gun and, or they, you know, you're driving a criminal around. You all catch a criminal conspiracy charge. Exactly. So everybody in the car is is caught up in, you know, with the same charges, even though you may have been completely innocent. And then, you know, they may come at you with some kind of plea bargain, which may sound enticing, um, but it's in. Part of that is that, you know, you stay out of trouble for five years and, you know, next thing you know, two years later, you're caught up in the same situation. And then, uh oh, you you have something, you know, there's a little hit here on your record. You're looking like looking at some time now. You know, it's just so easy. I think it's easy for people who are who perhaps don't have young black boys in the house or who are not living in some of these communities. It's 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 easy to to think that you know well if you if you just stay on the straight and narrow you don't get into trouble then you know what's the problem when i was doing research for this book and talking to to my co-author and she just was re- recounting story after story of of good decent honorable young boys who just got caught up into craziness 
because of no fault of their own and and the one fateful night hanging out with the wrong guys or um being in the wrong place and their lives change and then they really were 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 not at fault and so it just can happen so easily and it and it can also happen to to those of us who were who were raised in in wonderful households sure. and who had moms and dads in, at at home and whose parents had fabulous jobs and all of that i mean you know, we all there's a whole nother conversation to be had about a lot of those kids who are feeling like they have to prove their authentic blackness and get caught up into a lot of crazy situations. Um, so it, it can happen in any household. And and I think that that's one of the things that was the hardest for me to hear when, when I was working on the book, that really it's really hard to, to protect your child. And we all want to think that that there are things we can do, that there are things we can say clothes that we can buy for them that that will kind of serve as some kind of armor so that that they will arrive home alive and even even that i mean you know you could be walking to the store with to buy some iced tea and you know next thing you know your your life could be over so it's just it's hard to swallow this idea that we may not be able to protect them a hundred percent but there are things that we can do that to even if they they do get caught up into something to make sure that at least they don't lose their lives over it. I'm thinking too about, you know, all those practical common sense issues. So certainly maybe it's lack of intergenerational memory. Maybe it's a question of social capital access to resources. Maybe some folk are caught up with black hyper thug masculinity. So they act like young knuckleheads. And even then black and brown knuckleheads get punished a hell of a lot more than white knuckleheads. I mean, I'm sure we can recite so many anecdotes about that. I actually have an acquaintance who is a police officer here in Chicago and he's a brother, and he has told me so many stories about the wild amounts of discretion that police have in terms of if they want to arrest you or not. Do they throw that little bag of weed in the garbage and tell you to keep going? Do they decide because they're bored and are in a bad mood to like knock you upside the head and take you away? Do they get an attitude? Because quite literally, as your book points out, I mean, the common way that they snatch people up is disorderly conduct. Do they decide that you have a bad quote-unquote attitude and then use that and now you're caught up in the system? And now you take a plea and now you can't get a job and now you're caught up in this other cycle. So I'm sure in terms of talking to folk about the book and I said, you know, I love the podcast and talking to the interesting people here on the Chauncey to Vegas show. In terms of thinking about the people you met and the stories they told, as I said, I can certainly share about being followed by the police. There's a state of the black America on C-SPAN a few years ago. They had that conference and brother Dick Gregory, I don't know if you saw it. He was talking about being stopped by the cops and he said, I'm famous and I'm rich and my hands are still shaking when I see them coming up behind me because I'm afraid they're going to find something. They're somehow going to get me for something I didn't do. So in terms of that sharing, and I wrote on the website about they had the NATO meetings or the G6 or G7 meetings here in Chicago, and I was rousted by the police for sitting on a bench feeding birds. And, <laughs> and if I didn't have the home training and comportment, I happened to be on the phone with a friend, and I told my friend, tell my mother what's happening. Here's where I am in case they disappear me on one of these 48-hour Homeland Security deals. And the cop slash security guard became even more antagonistic when he realized I knew the law. Because I told him, I'm not going to tell you anything. I didn't do anything. And you don't have the police authority to stop me. But then I realized this is a discretionary thing. And if I don't watch myself, they're going to get me just out of spite. You're listening to the Chauncey DeVega Show featured at TruthWorks Network. Thank you for being with us. We know what to do with radio. TruthWorks Network. So Listening to TruthWorks Network, the Black Voice Collaborative, from the TruthWorks Network Studios at Blog Talk Radio. 
Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass. The Alpha Show. The Alpha Show. Fridays, 10 p.m. Just damn. Advanced political pushback. Talk radio on TruthWorks Network. Every Friday, he's all about politics. 10 p.m. TruthWorks Network. <laughs> now back to the Chauncey de Vega show. So in terms of the story, what was one of the most poignant or one or two of the most poignant stories where you just shook your head and said, oh, my God, everything went wrong that could go wrong? There was a case that um, that Robin Ship had where a, a, I think a, a boy was was actually he was he was literally driving home from his college graduation and he had some weed in his car and he gave them he allowed them to to search his vehicle so he was pulled over and you know and and it's we we write in a book that you that they have to have probable cause right. which they they usually don't and that you know you can say no that they can't search of course sometimes they they may still search and then it may be up to a lawyer to get it thrown out um but he allowed it and they found the marijuana and, you know, suddenly and it, the ironic thing is, you know, I think it was it was in it was in New York, which, you know, now is has been changing the law so much that something like that is no longer even going to become a felony. And, you know, it, it just kind of the because of the timing of it, when it, when it happened to him, you know, he he had a job that he was about to start and he lost the job. And, you know, he just she, she said when he came to see her, you know, he just seemed so lost and. Um, it, it was just kind of a, a, a painful realization that it, it just can happen so quickly and happen so easily to, to any of us. And, you know, I think that every system works as it was designed to work. And you kind of made a reference to this earlier. And so, you know, when we look at how credible proportion of black males in the criminal justice system, 2 million, it's like 800,000 black men. And, you know, when we, we think about the, the idea that a system could have such a disproportion in, in its application, it's it's very easy to to you know to fall into conspiracy theories, but there's no other way, no other conclusion that you could come to that this was what the system was designed to do, that it was created to do this very thing. I mean, it's the same thing with the education system, the same thing with the housing system, and so when we start looking around at all of the, these different systems, institutions that control our lives, and we invariably are the group on the bottom, it, there's nothing else to conclude but that that was the way that it was supposed to be. I mean, when you see that systemic inequality, as you said, schools, healthcare, access to um, educational services, as you said, policing, you know, it's institutional white supremacy that's acted out in a post-racial age with a president who happens to be black. It's something out of a dystopian science fiction novel or something that would have been written by George Shuler after he wrote Black No More. It's really so surreal. But as you said, we have this obligation to sit down. You know, I've done mentoring and outreach with young black and Latino youth. And I'm always surprised. As I said, I don't feel that much older than so many, closer to 40 than 30. But you get a lot of our young people who are getting the proper home training, who are being told what to do, but succumb to pressures from elsewhere, popular culture, their peer group, like we all did. I know I was a knucklehead when I was a teenager. But then you get these other young folk who look at me like I'm from Mars when I give them the advice to say, hey, be mindful of who's in the car with you. Because you're going to get the conspiracy charge. If a cop stops you, shut up. 
get an attorney. Don't tell them anything. Be polite, but don't tell anything. Or, and I'd be very curious about your thoughts about this too. You know, I was advised as a teenager and also in my early 20s by more than one person who, know, who knows more about this stuff than I, that if a cop ever stops you while you're driving and you've done nothing wrong, it's a pretext stop, roll the windows up, tell them you're calling the 911, you're afraid, and they need to send a sergeant or supervisor because you don't want them to plant something in the car. I mean, so... How is are we engaged in sort of a failure of mentoring? And what do you think practically about that sort of advice? What are some concrete things you would tell young folk? Number one, am I crazy with that life mantra, never letting the cops in the car? And number two, what are some types of advice, as I said, you know, deliverables, crystallizable things that our young folks should be taught in terms of how to survive on the day-to-day when dealing with the legal system and the police? Well, one of the things that unfortunately is very true about in, in encounters with the police is that there are many things that are within your rights to do, but is that going to be wise in terms of remaining safe and and alive? So we start seeing a lot of these dashboard cams and cameras that, or video that people are taking. A lot of times what happens is that the situation quickly gets escalated and and the police feel threatened or that their pride is on at stake or something kind of sets them off and they start taking extreme action. So while it, it 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 may be true that you could roll the window up and and try to get some 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 other officers on the scene who have more seniority, that's not necessarily going to stop this guy from smashing in your window and dragging you out of the car, um, and possibly doing even worse. My co-author ha- has Robin Ship has a, a lot of experience in kind of dealing with with guys who um, gave police a reason to. To escalate the situation, and so her her advice would be to to do what the police tell you to do: to be calm, to remain calm, to not give the the officer a reason to think that you're agitated, that you're trying to hide something, that you and it might fly off the handle and do something to him. I think that she she would say that rolling up the window and refusing to deal with them going to to probably escalate the situation very quickly, and you know cause him to take matters into his own hands. So, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, you're going to be vulnerable to, you know, what kind of day this guy is having and, you know, his his willingness to possibly kill you, take, some, take yeah, kill, kill you or take, you know, take some of his frustration out on you. But, you know, I think that that is probably wise to maybe turn your phone on to try to record the encounter and then to do what he tells you to do, you know, to try to politely explain your rights that, you know, no officer, I, I don't give you the per- permission to search my car. I ask that you, you call somebody else to the scene. You know, why are you pulling me over? Remain calm, use, re- express yourself in, in, you know, very calm language, even though in that situation, the thing that you most want to do is scream and yell. Um, but a lot of times that your anger comes off is, is kind of fear or agitation and, you know, will give him a, a reason to, to to claim that he had reasonable suspicion that therefore then he had the right to, you know, to do whatever it is that he's going to do next. Is it your instinct that the police, many police are just generally poorly trained and incompetent? And you add that with perhaps, you know, some many of them are clearly on steroids. And you add that with a lack of proper training in terms of how to process stress. I know a lot of psychologists in the aftermath of the Michael Brown shooting have said police are poorly trained in terms of dealing with the day-to-day stress of their jobs. So they become easily agitated and they see everyone as a potential suspect. And then you add incentives in terms of confiscating property or, you know, male or female, you know, masculine ego, where how dare you speak back to me? Because on one hand, it's like, man, 
how do we end up in a situation where citizens are punished for exercising their rights? And we, you know, going back to the Michael Brown case, as I said, you know, this is about the power of police unions too. And I don't know, and you can correct me if this is across the country because of their power, that when a police officer shoots and kills somebody, they're typically not tested on the spot for drugs or alcohol or steroids. They get a, you know, 24 or 48 hour hold if they're even tested at all. Scales are horribly weighted in terms of police getting a pass in terms of their violence. Do you think it's incompetence plus racism plus something else? Or is there no comprehensive explanation for why they behave this way? During the, some of the, the research that I did and stories that I wrote a, around the Michael Brown case, um, I came across uh, some interesting statements and s- some pieces that had written, been written by law enforcement personnel. And they talked about how departments these days recruit police officers um, that they use these images of excitement and adventure, uh, you know, almost like something out of a, a, a police show on television. And so you pull in a certain type of, of kind of testosterone fueled male who is looking for that kind of experience, who's been playing a lot of video games and thinking like, you know, oh boy, I'm going to get a gun and, and have some fun. And he says it's a completely, completely wrong way to, to recruit because, one, it's kind of you're pre-selecting a, a certain type of, of male that or female that is going to be joining the force and is going to be less inclined to want to de-escalate situations, less inclined to to want to find solutions, and is going to think that violence is always the proper response. And so I think that that it's training, it's it's perhaps a, a pre-selection of a certain type of, 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 of male that, you know, that you're dealing with this, this need, this desire to want to always kind of be in control of the situation and not allow this idea of, of kind of some balance to enter. And so like in the Eric Garner case in New York, um, when you look at something like that, you, you just wonder like what, what was the officer's goals in very quickly putting the guy in a chokehold? I mean, was it really necessary for them to so quickly escalate it and, and to resort to violence. If they're, if the idea was to get this guy off the street or to get him to stop selling, you know, they didn't have any, even have any evidence that he was selling cigarettes. Yeah, and it's just a nuisance charge and they could have ignored it too. And just gone about their business. They have gone about their business. I mean, they, in New York city, you see people doing ridiculous, possibly close to criminal activity all the time. And cops just turn the other way. But in this particular case and in many other cases involving African-American males, suddenly the behavior is is a threat, is a reason to engage instead of to keep going, to keep moving. And, you know, I think that there's probably some training in, in, in this idea of, you know, the broken windows theories and, you know, we have to crack down on the smallest bit of misbehavior in a way to prevent, you know, the bigger things happening later on. And so that that's that idea has been inculcated into the, the minds of police officers in New York and a lot of other places where crime is plunged. And so these big cases that, you know, officers used to be dealing with, that that stuff's not happening anymore. I mean, when I when I was a reporter in New York City, I remember at, at New York Newsday one year where, where the, the number of murders hit 2000 wow. and we, we did an, a graphic on the front page. Um, like a tiny little pictures or actually was on, it was in inside on every single person who was killed. Um, and they're down to less than 400, you know, it's just an enormous, enormous change in the way that, that these cities look and operate. 
And so to kind of replace the 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 big stuff that they used to investigate and to and to look, you know, to prevent, you know, now they're dealing with a lot of petty crime. Cops 20 years ago would have scoffed at, would have laughed at, would have let go. I mean, and some people would say, well, at the time the city had this feeling of lawlessness, you know, now it feels like, you know, a much safer place. Part of the, the, the reason why a lot of the, the, you know, the antagonism exists is because it feels like harassment now, because it's like I wasn't really doing anything wrong. And now you're bothering me. You're stopping and frisking me for no reason. That's only going to make things escalate and make things the, the relationship between these cops and these communities incredibly tense and, and hostile, and that's not going to help anybody. Yeah, there was an article in the Boston Review a few months ago, and they talked about the concept of custodial citizenship. And in that piece, they cited some data. And her conclusion was that white folks who are guilty of crimes are far have far fewer interactions with the police than black people who are innocent. If you're black, just minding your business, innocent, you're more likely to be harassed by the police. And then you think about how that can spin out of control and ruin somebody's life. They end up in jail, perhaps dead. Um, and using that broken windows theory, you know, that Wilson positive, I mean, it's really interesting when you get into what Willis, Wilson and his co-author were actually advocating. They'd probably be rather disgusted by seeing these types of um, police approaches used in a racially discriminatory and classist way. Because now you have folks who just want to get the numbers up. And as you said, you have adrenaline junkies. You have the pressure of arrests and confiscating people's property that you're not going to get back. And then you have this sense that the community is being unfairly policed and it just ends in tragedy. So I was thinking about your book and trying to locate it within a continuity of helpful texts and uh, pamphlets like Green Guide for Negro Motorists that was put out in the 40s, 50s and 60s for African, African-Americans so we could actually drive around the country and know where to stop. You know, and that was a very, very short pamphlet, very helpful, very practical. So if you were going to crystallize your book and some of the you know, wonderful anecdotes and stories and research into a list suitable, you know, a parallel that you could hand out at churches, at schools and community centers, what would be your four or five bullet points and lessons for young people? One is in this day and age, if the, the, the police come anywhere near you to, to sell, tell, turn your, your cell phone on and start recording, to know that if the, the, the police are, have pulled you over, have, have in some way tried to engage you in any kind of interaction that, that they're looking for for some reason to kind of conclude that you know you're up to to you know something nefarious and so you need to answer their questions don't try to avoid or evade them don't give them any extra information but you know be be upfront and don't try to to get away to run away or to to hide to give them the idea that you're hiding something when you are in police custody don't talk don't say anything until you have an attorney present. That is probably the, the number one piece of advice, you know, to come out of the book is that you have to have an advocate with you because once you're in, in the system, it's like the system's like human flypaper. So you're not going to get out by yourself and your inclination is going to be to, to try to do everything you can think of to convince the system, these officers, that they made a mistake. They didn't make a mistake. They pulled you over because they wanted to pull you over. They they pulled you into custody because that was what they wanted to do. And so you're going to need some help in, in, in order to extricate yourself. And, and that kind of goes for your family, too. Family members are often the, the, the parties who 
cause a lot of these young men to to wind up being implicated because um, they talk and they don't really think that that their statements are going to come back to to harm the the young man in question. So the 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 family has to kind of follow the same guidelines. And if you don't know exactly what you're talking about or why the the police are questioning you, which usually you don't, then your your best bet is to 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 remain quiet and wait until an attorney shows up. And then I think the the, the last bit of advice is is to a, a lot of our 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 colleagues and associates are going to to wind up being the reason that that we get into some of these predicaments. So just always be aware, be aware of of who you're with and what they're doing and kind of what their their intentions are. And if somebody comes into the to the gathering into the circle who you don't know, then maybe the best thing for you to do is to check out that night and to go off by yourself and and make it home and kind of live to to see another day because I think a, a lot of times, you know, the excitement of kind of hanging out with with you know with your homies and seeing what what the the night leads to and if if you don't know all the guys in the circle and sometimes even when you do that's when bad things start to happen so you kind of have to always be aware of of who you're with i mean we don't have the luxury as my parents and godparents and other folk told me of being young and stupid because you don't get the benefit of the of the doubt i'm thinking about that young african-american he's not he was late teens early 20s who was just killed because he was dressed up like a character from an anime. And the cop shot right. him dead. I remember my friend, my mother would never let me, and I did it anyway, young, being a kid, play with toy guns in public. He's like, you can go over to your friend's house and play in their backyard, but don't walk down the street with a toy gun because the cops will kill you. And I don't want to have to. And I would say, no, 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 you're exaggerating. It's the 1980s, early 90s. This stuff isn't going to happen. This is civil rights movement was so long ago. You're just old-fashioned. Truth, justice, power. We ask justice. We ask equality. Guaranteed. Forever. Truth, justice, power. What is there to explain? Hi, this is Janice Graham inviting you to join me each Saturday evening, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'll be listening for you. Power. What is there to explain? Now back to the Chauncey to Vega show. And lo and behold, her wisdom is true and right. And as we wind down, and given your expertise and given all the other work you've done and sort of having to work the racism beat, as we affectionately call it, folks who write about race, class, social injustice, the color line, and related matters, number one, how do you keep your spirits and energy positive? Because doing this sort of work can be tiresome and tedious and exhausting mentally, physically, uh, and emotionally. And an unrelated question, but still one very important. What is your reaction to TV shows like The First 48 or Cops? And in particular, The First 48, because, I mean, it really is pornography for the age of incarceration. When you see these young black men predominantly, the way they, you know, they cast these shows, who are arrested, suspected of crimes, and they're recording them, and they're telling all their business. And inevitably, they end up snitching on each other or even being quiet, and they all go to jail. Do you just turn the channel or you just shake your head? Or, I mean, is it just stupefying? I can't, I can't mess with shows like that. You know, it, it does. It saps my spirit. A lot of a, a lot of what's on television in, in this age of reality shows makes me wonder why people submit to it. Sure. If I kind of at that 
quest to, to be famous and, you know, to tell all your business leads people to make some really bad decisions. And I'm, I'm always amazed by it. I mean, I guess, you know, I'm a little older now. And so this idea that fame above anything else is should be, should be my primary goal. I just, you know, I don't get it. You know, there's this certainly kind of this almost like this crime porn that circulates throughout the airwaves. And if you're talking about crime in America, then certainly there has to there have to be some black males involved. If you don't have black males involved, then it won't be realistic. Certainly, that's what the, the most of the watchers will, will think. And, you know, the a lot of these shows, shows are just kind of affirming the you know, the, the narrative of who we are and, and what we're all about. And, you know, again, then justifying the, the behaviors of the criminal justice system and all the all the systemic racism of the systems that we've been talking about. So all of that is just kind of part of this vicious cycle. Um, and how do I stay kind of uplifted, you know, thinking about my children and the, their children and, and nieces and nephews and trying to, to do everything that I can to, to fight against systemic racism, to, to oppose white supremacy, to make the world just a, a little bit easier for them to deal with. And so that's what kind of keeps me going. It's, you know, this, this, it's not selflessness, but, you know, it's this idea that, you know, I'm, that, that this is about a lot more than just me. I mean, there's a very big picture here that, you know, I can't in any way compare my, my fight to, to those of my parents and, you know, the previous generations. But, you know, we, we all have our own struggles and, and you know, we all have our, our tests and every generation has kind of the, its own version of the civil rights movement. And so, you know, I see me, this is being, using my talents um, my, my experience for the greater good. And so, you know, that's what keeps me going. And Mr. Nick Childs, where can folks find more information about your book online, your other work, and where can folks, if they are so inclined, reach out to you to get in contact? Well, you can get in contact with me through my website, um, nickchilds.com. book is everywhere books are sold, Justice While Black. It's on Amazon. You can find out about it on nickchilds.com. My, my day job right now is the editor-in-chief of an African-American news site um, called Af- AtlantaBlackStar.com. And so we do a lot of, kind of hard-hitting um, racial justice issues, social justice issues on the site. But in, in addition to entertainment and sports, I think that people who are interested in these issues would find it very edifying. So there, you can also kind of find me through, through Atlanta Black Star also. Nick, I want to thank you for your generosity and your time and your honesty and sharing. And I mean, your book, Justice While Black, we didn't have an opportunity to get into all of the details. I mean, a wonderful, wonderful resource that takes folks literally from the history of police in this country all the way to dealing with plea bargains and how to comport themselves while on trial. As I said, I think everybody, and this is why I'm so glad we were put in contact with one another, should sit down and read this book, especially if you have a young child who is black or brown. And I would also include if you're a mentor or friend or someone raising a child across the color line. We have a lot with interracial adoption and the way that social networks have changed. We have a lot of our white brothers and sisters who are raising black kids, too. And they need to have this information as armor for the types of things that their children are going to experience. So, Nick, I just want to thank you one more time for being so gracious and so generous. This was a great discussion, really deep in, in substantive discussions like this, you know, kind of also helped me keep going and knowing that there, there's somebody out there listening or somebody out there reading. So, you know, thanks for the work that you're doing. Thank you. That was great. I just want to thank Nick one more time for that just rich sharing and, and that pushback because, you know, folk think they know something. 
I'm up here going to be locking the doors when the cops come and tell them they can't search the car and they're going to break the window open and lay me out on the street. So I'm going to make sure I get that through my friendship and social networks and all the folk who received similar advice about what to do when the cops stop. And here's my own hard-headed stick-to-itiveness, as some of my friends have pointed out. I know that advice. I know that wisdom. And I'm going to have to bite my tongue when and if the police stop me. Because my inclination will still be I'm an American citizen and I know my rights. And you need to call a supervisor. And then that cop going to knock me upside the head. Isn't that the paradox that Nick pointed out so brilliantly? You have your rights. But going back to a very famous Supreme Court decision, you know, black folks have no rights that white people are bound to respect. Driving While Black, essential book. The racism beat can be tedious, it can be tiresome, even as much as it is important. So next week here on the podcast, change of direction, a very fun change of direction. I had a wonderful conversation with Jason Calavito. He is a professional skeptic, historian, anthropologist, as he jokingly says, xeno-anthropologist. And he and I sat down and talked about ancient aliens Legends of gigantic humans who populated America, Atlantis, Afrotopian dreaming, white supremacy and their fantastical obsession with Vikings and the founding of America. Jason is cool people. Uh, I reached out to him. He is very prominent uh, in terms of his writings and interviews. He's been in many documentaries, and he's had some fun entanglements, so to speak, in fighting back and pushing back against white supremacists and their fantasies about the ancient world and ancient aliens and extraterrestrials. And as someone who grew up listening to Art Bell, the great coast-to-coast AM, now it's on with George Norrie, interesting, but not the same. It was a natural conversation and one that I so very much enjoyed. And I think all of you folk out there who are ghetto nerds, maybe even those people who watch those ancient alien shows, or my black brothers and sisters who are Drunk on Afrocentric dreams of black folk from outer space and Africans discovering the new world before Europeans. And I put discover in quotation marks because how can you discover a place where there are people already living? We'll enjoy the conversation. You know, Jason was generous. He was kind. As I said, that's my way of lightening the tone here. And we've got so many wonderful people. I got a big surprise coming up in the next few weeks, fingers crossed. And Nick, who we talked to this week on the Chauncey Vegas show, kind guest. Jason, another great guest for the next installment of the podcast known as the Chauncey Vega Show. And as I said, on ChaunceyVega.com, we're going to do a twofer. So you're going to have on Tuesday, Nick Childs talking about Justice While Black. And then on Thursday, we're going to have Jason Calavito talking about ancient aliens and Bigfoot and his work as a professional skeptic taking on stupidity and foolishness. So it's a nice two for one. And, And I really try to Give folk and bring folk interesting conversations with interesting and smart people. And I love the podcast. I love We Are Respectable Negroes and ChaunceyVega.com. I've gotten so much back out of it. But as I've said before, the website and the podcast are labors of love, but they are labor, right? There's opportunity costs involved. Soon we'll be on iTunes, and we're going to have to get a dedicated host we'll be paying for. Uh, it's got to take care of all that. The time and the energy, it takes several hours to produce the podcast, never mind the writing for the website, in addition to my own professional work and my own teaching and other responsibilities. And we are in the midst, my best NPR fundraising voice, of our annual fundraiser. We do two fundraisers here on ChaunceyVega.com and on the Chauncey Vegas show. One roughly in June, July, and one at December at Christmas time. So I'm competing with your Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, and other holiday money. But if you like and value what we do, if you like and value what we're trying to do here on the Chauncey Vegas show, and as I said, we got some really great guests 
already recording and lined up. So the Trans Vegas show, fingers crossed, will now be once a week at least. And that's something I really want to do. And I'm so glad and, and so touched that people reached out and said, yes, we'd love to sit down and chat with you. As you know, I don't advertise on the website. I don't advertise on the podcast. I've had opportunities, people reaching out saying, hey, here's some paid for content. Or, hey, you want to run some ads? And it's like, no, I want to feel free to speak truth to power in the best way that I can and to have the fun, interesting, and rich conversations I have here on the Chauncey Vegas show without having to worry about commercials, without having to say, oh, if I say something that's unacceptable, or they're going to pull an ad and get mad at me, is there going to be a business complication? No, I just want to be free for us to sit down at our virtual salon, both on the podcast and also on the website. So if you can and are willing and are able, I know times are tough out there. I'm the worst fundraiser ever because I say take care of your family, take care of your pets, take care of your people. But if you got some gold or silver left over, some ducats, some centavos, as they would say, see if you can throw those in the PayPal link on the right-hand side of the sidebar, chauncevega.com. Click that PayPal and throw a brother some love. I mean, that's the positive energy that keeps me going forward, keeps things one foot in front of the other. And I will use that to refuel, to grow and develop the next iteration of what I have been repeatedly urged by folk to do for the website. So we got the podcast, and depending on how other projects develop, I'm going to have Fingers crossed another pleasant surprise in the very near future. So once and again, I want to thank all of you for listening, sharing, tweeting, downloading the eponymously named podcast for ChaunceyDeVega.com, known as The Chauncey Vegas Show. I want to thank our kind guests who have agreed to appear on The Chauncey Vegas Show. I mean, wonderful people. Nick Childs this week. Folks who are Afrocentrists, who have dreams of black folk in antiquity, founding America, and traveling across the ocean. May get a little worked up, sending some uh, angry, grumpy emails. I'm sure some of the folks who I used to travel with to the Black Man Think Tanks in Cincinnati in the late 90s will probably be a little upset, too. So I'm sure they'll be emailing me saying, what the heck are you talking about? Slurring the late, great Ivan Van Sertema and others. And it wasn't slurring. It was love. It was critical intervention. And certainly the white supremacists are not going to be happy at all when we start to mine and try to figure out their obsession with finding white folk everywhere, be it outer space, be it in Atlantis, or be it here in North America where they were giants. So there's a wonderful, wonderful conversation next week. So until next time, be well, be safe, and try to speak a little truth to power. And for those folks who are out there marching all over the world um, against police brutality, standing up with the folk of Ferguson, standing up with Garner's family, standing up with young Mr. Tamir Rice's family, that horrible tragedy. I mean, even when I say it, you hear my voice change, I'm a 12-year-old kid. Remind me of myself out there playing with toy guns, playing in a park, killed instantaneously by two thug road cops, one of which was incompetent and fired from his previous job because he was unprofessional and he still gets a badge and a gun and a pension and 60K and a uniform and a license to kill. So I want to send some positive energy out to young Mr. Tamir and Garner and Brown's families and all the other folk out there who've lost people to the police, who suffered from the police and their thuggery. And if we can go out there and march and support both emotionally and if we can financially because there are funds out there to try to help folk and their freedom struggles and to try to put their lives back together after their loved ones have been taken by the police. So please, can we do that? And the other final point, this is so important, is this is not just about black men. This is about black women. This is about brown folk more generally. This is about the poor. And this is about human rights across the color line. Police brutality is a violation of our human rights and our citizenship rights as Americans, as human beings. And I've said this before, and I hope there's somebody doing this expose. I will bet you that the same things that are happening to 
black men and brown men in this country at the hands of the police are also happening on our First Nation brothers and sisters reservations in their communities and also to poor whites. And that's the big story, that this is systemic violence across lines of race and class. And if they can do it to us, they can do it to you. And that's why I hope our white brothers and sisters who are middle class, who are upper class, who are rich, members of the white elite, the oligarchs who 1% wake up and say, well, you know, maybe for reasons of social stability, we need to rein these cops in because they're going to bring the house down on all of us. Or maybe they don't care because they're getting paid off the prison industrial complex and they know that police militarization is their line of defense against the poor and the working classes and people of color. Just something to think about. Something to think about. So again, thank you for listening to The Chauncey DeVega Show. The Chauncey DeVega Show is featured at TruthWorks Network each Monday, 8 p.m. Join Chauncey on The Thought. TruthWorks Network, the Black Voice Collaborative.